0: Hey everyone, thanks for checking out Bible Unbound. Hey, did you know that Bible Unbound actually has an end goal in mind? Well, Kind of. Otherwise, I'm just another white guy that decided to start a podcast in 2020. No, the end goal of Bible Unbound is to create engaging content that opens up our understanding of the scriptures, to form a community of people that want to dig into the narrative of the Bible more. And one of the ways that I think would be really, really cool if Bible Unbound got to create an animated series of the narrative arc of the scriptures. And so if you want to support this project, if you want to support that end goal, we decided to start a patreon and you can totally do that at patreon.com forward slash bible unbound of course you don't have to support the project i'm just glad that you're here i'm glad that you made it to episode three and this episode is super awesome and so i'm super excited to get to it so let's do that right now oh. the first time i was recording this the power went out and everything was lost So this is actually the second time we're recording this So that's fun. (laughs) If you could hear the pain in my voice, that's what that's from. Hey, everyone, thanks for making it over to the Bible Unbound podcast series. Here at Bible Unbound, we're trying to unwrap the transcendent epic of the Bible to make it more accessible, to make it more understandable. And hey, we appreciate your willingness to explore the book with us. So get out your Bible, unless you're like driving or working out or something, then Please keep your eyes on whatever task it is you're doing. But hey, if you can, your Bible will probably help. I mean, it'll make it cooler anyway. You can tell if I'm lying, which is always a a possibility. Hey, you remember how at the end of the two towers, Samwise and Frodo are walking through the forest, and Sam says, You know, I wonder if they'll ever write stories about you, Mr. Frodo. And then Frodo, he turns around, and he really sincerely looks at Sam, and, and he says, You forgot about the best character, Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. And as the audience, we flashback to all the ways Sam has just helped Frodo get as far as he did in his journey. We realize that Frodo would not have gotten far without Sam. In fact, I think Frodo even says that I wouldn't have gotten far without Sam. And later in the story, we find out just how true that is. This is because Samwise has traits and characteristics that Frodo just doesn't have, or at least doesn't have because of the ring. And Frodo, then, is like half of a hero. Sam completes him to make sure the journey is successful. This is why, also, by the way, it's an objective fact that Samwise Gamgee is the greatest literary character of all time. But anyway, likewise, we have seen several key characters rise up the ranks, only to fall because they were only part of what we need our hero to be. We had Cain, from the seed of the woman, and a worker of the ground. And we had Seth, a righteous man. And we had... We had... Oh. Well, would you look at that? In all of human history, you'd think there'd be one more oh well, we've met Cain and we've met Seth. And we also saw that the thoughts and heart of man is always full of evilness, no matter how morally upright they may be. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the author has then positioned us to look out for a righteous man who will come to crush the head of the serpent. His heart won't or can't be full of evilness. However, Because the heart of humans are continually always full of the evil stuff, and the man will be born of a woman, meaning he will have to be a human, this sets us up for a difficult task to find the man who will crush the head of the serpent. But the biblical authors, they they seem to hold out hope that God will accomplish what he promised. And while typically on the show we won't take so long to go through one book, Genesis really is a great primer for reading the rest of the Bible. It's like they should have put it first in the canon or something. I don't know. It introduces a lot of characters, and each one gives us a new aspect of the hero that we should be on the lookout for. This week, our ship has come to rest on Port Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6, 9. Now, the story of Noah has confounded humans since, well, well, really since just the Enlightenment. It's, it's been pretty recently, actually, that this story has confounded people, mostly because we're so caught up over the historicity of the events that we completely miss the purpose of the tale. And while apologetics is a great discipline, and and great for wrestling with and understanding the Christian faith on a whole other level, one that I will never reach or touch, it stands to reason that this story had a different purpose than to recount the events of history. Not that it doesn't necessarily, but that simply isn't the point of the story. And so, no matter your beliefs, Here on Bible Unbound, anyway, we are doing one long thought exercise, namely, what would it look like if we approached the Bible with a clean slate, no preconceived notions whatsoever? Well, I can tell you that when we approach the flood narrative, we wouldn't be hung up over the historicity of it, because we would see that the story is not trying to accomplish that task. The story is trying to tell us that human beings have a problem, and this problem will be solved by another human. And the flood narrative is the pinnacle, the apex, the climax of human sin and injustice. The author writes that the whole earth was corrupt and filled with violence. A more literal translation might render something to the effect of, the earth was being ruined by humans before the face of God and blood came up from the ground like a spring. Which echoes more faithfully the inversion of the garden narrative and the story of Cain and Abel, where Abel's blood cries up from the ground. Now the whole earth is filled with this blood that cries to God. But in the beginning, God's face hovered over the deep and he crafted beauty and life from this chaos. So beauty and life was in the face of God and humanity was set on the earth for the express purposes to cultivate that life and beauty. Instead... It seems that they have perverted it so that the springs that once covered the face of the earth giving life now produce blood and violence, death and sin. And it seems to be screaming at the creator. And so God says that because humans have ruined the earth with violence, he says, I will ruin the humans because humanity has perverted my creation. I will establish a new covenant with the righteous man of Noah. And similarly to how the humans had inverted the created order, so God inverts his created order by allowing the separation of the waters from above and the separation of the waters from below to collapse in on themselves. In Hebrew tradition, there is a theological phrase for this. It's called measure by measure. And we see that all over the genre of the law, but we see it here too, where God measures out his judgment based on what the human beings are measuring out to God. Here, it's that the human beings have flipped the created order on its head. And so God also flips the created order on its head. And I know that this passage really makes us uncomfortable, because it used to make me really uncomfortable. But I think intuitively we understand where God is coming from here, at least on an emotional level. For example, there was this one time when I was in school where I had made a a short film about my struggles of being at school. And it was a film that was supposed to be dedicated to the innocence we lose as children when we grow up, in homage to nostalgia in childhood, how our imagination fades as we get older. But when it came time to show it to the school, the professor noted how it was a poorly made attempt to showcase the difficulties of being sexually confused. <laughs> now, some of you may have just laughed there. The story is, in many ways, Pretty funny, but at the time, it was horribly embarrassing. And so I tell it to say this, that what the class did with my creation wasn't at all what I had intended. It wasn't at all what I had in mind when I created it. And it will forever live in the minds of my classmates and in my mind as a poorly made film about being sexually confused. Maybe you don't have a story quite so embarrassing. But we do understand what it's like to put our heart and our time and our effort into something, to be vulnerable with something or someone, and have it become a complete inversion of what we ever expected or hoped. Maybe you too had a piece of art that you created that someone didn't understand. Or maybe it was a relationship that ended up being a complete inversion of what you hoped it was. Or maybe it was a dream that you had in your heart that never came to fruition. Whatever it was, we have to know what God must be feeling here on an emotional level. And while for God it may not be shame or embarrassment, it is undoubtedly connected to sorrow. Something we miss when it's translated into English is the language employed in the Hebrew is steeped in sorrow. And while I don't have all of the answers of God's sovereign will, although, plug, we do tackle that a little bit in our Jonah series over on YouTube, there is something to be said for a God that feels. And so, creation is undone on itself, and the waters collapse in. And everyone dies, save one man and his family. We should have high hopes for this man, since God himself declares him righteous. He's here to give the ground rest from the curse. His father says that. He even takes it upon himself to be the archetypal Adam figure when he gets to re-establish the order of humans and animals. His, His name is Noah, which sounds like the Hebrew word noach, or rest. And once the flood subsides, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family. And he commands them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, just like he did with Adam and Eve. He says, every green plant you can eat. But this time, God even adds on. He says, hey, I'll let you even eat the animals, which up till now was forbidden. And there was a profound promise made by the God of the universe here at the very end of this covenant that he made with Noah. This profound promise that should radically shape our worldview as readers, whether Christians or non-Christians, because God looks at at this human family and he says that he will never again strike down every living creature and while the earth remains, day and night won't cease. This has to be profound because the biblical authors have set up for us a world in which history is heading somewhere. And typically, with no thanks to Hollywood, we think that the earth is heading towards destruction. Christians or non-Christians, we think that the Christian life is one where we go to church to become a good enough person in order to get into heaven, and that heaven is this floaty, ethereal existence outside of space and time, and that while we're there, Earth is going to be blown up because of all the bad people in it. However, if the biblical authors are holding out truth to us, then the truth is that the Earth was created in perfect harmony with God. And the snake, the curse of sin and death, has defiled the earth. So it's not the earth that's the problem. It's humanity's disposition and affinity for sin. The curse of sin is what needs to be destroyed. That is why we need a snake crusher. And the New Testament will present a man to not only crush the head of the snake, but then to redeem all of creation back to God as well. The biblical authors seem to be holding out that the earth will never be destroyed. The intention was always, from the beginning, since Genesis, was that it will always be made new. And it will be made new with God as king over all of creation again. So when Noah and his family get off the ark, we should have in our minds a new Garden of Eden. Even Noah, he plants a vineyard, he plants a garden, and the established order seems to be righted again, which makes what happens next particularly heartbreaking. We're not entirely sure, and by we, I mean, I don't know, people who read the Bible, scholars, we're not entirely sure the extent to which Ham sinned, because it says, quote, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And that's it. And we can surmise, given passages from Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 21, that this might have been a euphemism to describe a more violent sexual advance by Ham on his father, but the author doesn't recount it that way. Either way, the incident brings shame not only to Ham, but to the entire family as well. And also, by the way, I'm sorry if it's Ham, I I don't actually know, I've always said Ham, but... I guess that could be wrong. I don't know. Either way, whether it was Ham or Noah, what does strike me as odd here, and maybe it strikes you as odd too, Noah's sin is not the focus of the story. The fact that Noah got drunk is not the focus of the story. It's his son's sin that makes Noah not able to be the snake crusher. And I can see where the story is heading literarily. But I'm not sure what this is trying to get across. So, hey, if you have any ideas of why you think the story focuses on Ham's sin and not Noah, reach out to Bible Unbound. Contact.bibleunbound at gmail.com is our email, or you can reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram or leave a review. I don't know. If you come up with something good, we should definitely feature it on an episode because I want to know and we're here to figure this thing out together. But, Anyway, for our purposes here, the sin of Ham and the disqualification of Noah becomes the impetus to be on the lookout for a specific aspect of the snake crusher. Namely, that he will be either from the line of Shem or Japheth. But it also raises another aspect that we should be on the lookout for. Our snake crusher needs to be in right relationship to other human beings. But... We move on, and the Tower of Babel falls, and all of humanity is dispersed throughout the world, and we see the biblical author is intentionally choosing to follow the line of Shem to a man named Abram. We can assume that the Snake Crusher will be from this line of humanity, from the line of Shem. Abram then becomes the father of the Israelite nation, and thus we get the Shemitic or Semitic people. If you've ever heard of the term anti-Semitic, this is where that term finds its roots, the people against the line of Shem. So where does all of this information about Noah and Abram and Cain, where does this leave us? Why does the author keep introducing us to characters only to see them fail? Adam, Cain, Lamech, Seth, Noah culminating in the Tower of Babel, where all humans are partaking in the sin of Adam and Eve, trying to rival God's knowledge. Why does the author keep doing this? Well, I think the answer is twofold. One, each time a hero rises and falls, it tells us something profound about the character of our main hero. About the Snake Crusher. The true Snake Crusher. With Adam, we learned that the Snake Crusher needs to be a righteous man. They need to be in right relationship to God. With Cain and with Noah, we learned that they need to be in right relationship to other human beings. As we have seen, no one exhibits both of these characteristics, no one, until we get to a strange man on the outskirts of a big city named Abram. Hmm. And secondly, what all of these stories have been doing and shaping for us by the time we get to Abram is that we get a clearer picture of the god who created existence. Because by the time we get to Abram, we see a God who is unrelentingly faithful. Why is he so faithful? Well, for two reasons, as I see it. One, because he's perfect, and he can't lie to himself or change his mind on us, even when the biblical authors anthropomorphize him to. He won't change his mind on what he created. Which means that, two, this perfect God that created all of the things in the universe, that created stars and grass and music and laughter and joy. This God, who can't change his mind on those things, loves you because he created you. And he may show you the depths of your heart, which may look like Adam or Cain or Lamech, but it also means that he has the capacity to be faithful to you even when you see your your ness your ability to partake in the Snake Crusher's M.O., your ability to deal death and destruction out to the world, this God is still faithful to you. So, our train pulls into a new stop along the road. And when we get out, we should be surprised by our surroundings. But that's where we'll pick it up next week. Thanks so much. This was Bible Unbound.